Okay, I feel like today is going to be a massive undertaking as we attempt to dissect the film Reds from, right, oh, shoot, I didn't write down the year, 1981, I believe. It is 1981, yeah. It is a 90-82 on Rotten Tomatoes and was nominated for 12 Oscars. So this is a massive kind of character epic from the early 80s, directed by Warren Beatty. Uh, he got three wins. Beatty did win for director, uh, won for cinematography, and then Maureen Stapleton won for Best Supporting Actress, playing a person you're going to talk about uh, later here, Emma Goldman. And I, remember, I noticed halfway through the movie, I was looking up the, the stuff because you need breaks during this movie, and uh, I saw that she had won. I'm like, wait, what? She's hardly been in it. I guess she comes back into it. But I also still feel like she gets pretty darn little screen time to even be nominated, let alone win supporting actors for this. So I thought that was kind of bizarre. Yeah, that is kind of a, it was kind of a mystery to me when I, I saw that too. And I, I didn't really understand that either. And then the one thought I had, as far as Oscars goes, I was like, how in the heck did Diane Keaton not win the uh, Oscar for Best Actress? And then I look it up, it's like, oh, because uh, this was Catherine Hepburn's win for On Golden Pond. Yep. And Diane Keaton had already won a few years earlier for Annie Hall. So it's just like, oh, nope, just the just bad timing. Because I think Keaton kind of steals the show here. But overall, what, what are your thoughts on Reds as a film? I hated this movie. Okay. <laughs> I can't really defend it too much. I'll defend it a little bit, but I can't really defend it too much. But elaborate. So the movie itself, the way it's made, I thought was just okay. Like, the directing's fine. The acting's pretty good, actually. But it's way too long. It's boring as all hell. And I cannot stand the kind of people that these oh. characters portray. <laughs> these, like... Greenwich Village, New York, communists, I just cannot stand, like, in real life, I can't stand those kinds of people. <laughs> and so the fact that, like, though, like that's the, they're the protagonists, like, it, <laughs> like, when, uh, when he goes to Russia and, like, his, his train's getting attacked by the whites, I'm, like, cheering for the whites. I'm, like, please, <laughs> please murder all of this, these communist scum on this train. <laughs> Yeah, I, I hated it. I, this, this was an absolute slog to get through. Like, I, it should be a testament how much I care about the show that we do that I even finished this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely did it in multiple viewings. I think I even told you I started it earlier than I would normally start uh, a movie. Because basically, I watched it before we had talked about the previous movie that we recorded just to kind of get it out of the way, knowing it would knowing it would take kind of multiple viewings to get through. I had seen it once before as a Best Picture nominee, you know, again, probably 15, 20 years ago when I was doing a lot of those early ones. And I just remember kind of thinking, meh, at the time. And that's where I kind of am. I don't actively dislike it, but it, I also definitely put it firmly in the movie vegetable category, where I do think it is a worthwhile watch for film appreciators but it's hard okay. to recommend and it's not going to be anybody's favorite um i do think it is interesting again also i always think it does help when i'm looking at these films with that his historian mindset like i'm looking for little nuggets that we can talk about historically and so that mm -hmm. does help keep me more engaged and that this is an important time period 
to kind of break down social politically or whatever in the United States and the world at the time. And that's what we'll be doing this episode. But yeah, yeah it's definitely hard to recommend. And it kind of feels more yeah. like it should have been a series or I guess to your point, just kind of not made at all. Oh, so I, I do. Ha- there, there were two things that I actually liked in this movie. Okay. One of them was the scene with Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton where she goes to his apartment to basically to sleep with him after her and Jack have the fight later on right after after the rekindling right. yeah 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 so they had they had yeah that's that's a good point god this movie's so long they have like their little they get together then they break up and they get back together they break up right. again so this is after this like this their second kind of breakup or whatever yeah that scene where then he like kind of shits on her yes <laughs> and says yes. like you're basically like you're a, you're being a wannabe communist right now and like you think you're so basically on this like high horse but you're actually you kind of suck i really appreciated that that scene uh I, and i really like jack nicholson's performance in it and also just the content of the scene i was like yeah like i just make the whole movie this please Right. Basically, the hero of the film for you is Eugene O'Neill. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the other thing that I actually did like was the interviews. Oh, yeah. Where yes. they interspersed the interviews with the real people. And I was like, thought that that also could have just been its own thing. Like, you could have just made a documentary about these people because you had the interviews with the actual right. people who were there at the time. I would have found that much more enjoyable and interesting to watch. Like every time they had the interviews come on, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Like these are people, even a bunch of them. I was like, all right, I don't, I don't really like them or agree with probably a lot of, you know, a lot of what they believe, but I would much rather see the actual people talk about it than see it. The, what I thought was the boring narrative parts. I thought that the, the interviews were much more interesting and I, I almost wish that they would have just made a documentary. Right. And you could argue it almost then, in feel, it feels like a dramatized documentary because it's fairly accurate yeah. to real life, as I'll talk about here. And it is just kind of a look at these actual people. And so it's almost it almost is like a dramatized documentary, but kind of done, honestly, so well that it just becomes a narrative film or they they made it as a narrative film and yeah i still think it's an interesting glimpse into this world but like you're saying you're like i just you just don't have any sympathy for these people and i at least appreciate the intellectual idealism but they're also kind of all pompous asses i guess at the same time and so i see where you're coming from there where like they kind of think they know better than everybody else even though they're clearly in the minority and all those kinds of things the other movie that it made me think of is Dr. Zhivago, uh, obviously set during the same time. And the idea that Dr. Zhivago is ultimately this romance set against the Russian Revolution, that's kind of exactly what this is. I, I saw this movie as primarily a relationship drama between Jack Reed and Louise Bryant set against this other stuff. But it's also not a happy romance is kind of more this real life drama off on again off again and just kind of makes it feel more raw and real and so i kind of appreciated it from that standpoint but yes it's still very kind of slow and uh a slog to get through okay anything else about the movie before we kind of dive into the history here no no i just uh 
yeah, really was not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, historically though, I still think there's a lot to kind to dig into here because this is a time period that's kind of just forgotten about. Even when you think about communism in the United States, you think McCarthyism in the 1950s, you're not thinking the 19-teens. Yeah. But if we kind of look globally, that's going to be a, a different factor. So <laughs> there's a lot to kind of go through here. And I think I have like five pages of notes. <laughs> um, so hopefully this is not as boring as uh, the film was for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually going to start with communism and kind of socialism and the, all those movements in the world at the time. And then I'll get into how Jack Reed, Warren Beatty's character, falls into that some of this is from research some from some of this is just from me kind of trying to recontextualize kind of world history and how we think about all these things so my i don't know i didn't read this anywhere but i was kind of thinking how if you go back to say the mid 1700s essentially the entire world was some form of monarchy yeah basically the whole the whole planet by the mid 1700s right. and then over the next 150 years you have this massive massive shift to republics, constitutional monarchies, democracies of, of some degree of more people in power. And even when you get to something like the Bolshevik Revolution, that is, that is still ostensibly a movement away from a monarchy to the people yeah. in power. Well, and there is a... Did I ever send you the link for the Sean Munger video? On YouTube. That name sounds familiar, so I, you may have. I don't know if I watched it or not. So it's a... I don't remember if we talked about this on air or not, but he, just two weeks ago, released a a three-hour video with a 45-minute companion video all about this time period. It's like it covers uh, okay. 1905 to 1920, and it's about okay. the fall... It's called Fall of the Monarchies. And it's about, oh, like, okay. the end of, like, the Habsburg monarchy, the German monarchy, the Chinese monarchy. Right. And, and the Russian monarchy all fell at that same time, like, all within this, like, 15-year period. Hmm. And it's not, it's it's a while after, but on a world history scale, it's not that long after, like, the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And that's what I was tying it to, right, right. Yeah. That it, it still kind of all begins with the American Revolution. Which again sounds American centric, but like, what is the oldest representative democracy on the planet? The United States. <laughs> like, we were first, right. and everybody else kind of followed. Now we didn't dethrone George, but we separated, and then, like you said, then the French uh, Revolution is right on the heels of ours, and then it is kind of this transition period as you get to the 19th century and industrialism. Everyone's kind of the, the people now literate like they weren't since centuries before. Science is kind of coming around and just the whole world is kind of rechanging how they think about things. And so in the midst of that, you get the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx. And I always forget to write down the stuff. In, in 1848, so right in the middle of the 19th century. So, you know, right, whatever you think. Again, I still, obviously, none of us are communists here. But it's <laughs> kind of like we always talk about, like, every, everyone sees himself as a good guy. And, like, so, like, and, and even our character here, Jack Reed, is, like, ultimately Jack Reed 
is an idealist. He's right. doing what he thinks is in the best interest of the most people, and he wants yeah. to help. But yeah. it's what you're willing to do to get there. Kind of like a Che Guevara that we've talked about, who was who an idealist, but also willing to murder lots of people in the quest to achieve his ideals. Yeah, and this, uh, <laughs> it kind of was like, it, it was almost a story of Jack Reed, Jack Reed, communist sympathizer, and his journey to find out why communism sucks. Because it's like, he's like all hardcore into communism, and then once communism is implemented, he doesn't like any of the thing that the communism is doing. <laughs> right, and that, yeah, I, and I thought the film did a good job illustrating that without necessarily hanging a lantern on it. And yeah, and we'll get and we'll get to all that. <laughs> so, so in some ways, what I what I kind of wrote here was what Marx was saying that much different than what a Jefferson was saying. If you think about inalienable rights and you know the rights of the individual and like there's there's more overlap there than I feel like people today want to recognize just because of implementation and the directions you can take these thing if it, it, take each of these things if you're essentially just talking about the people have a right to govern themselves what's the difference between Jefferson and Marx it, from that from from that starting point because one is inherently individualistic and each person has a right to determine their own okay their own circumstances their you know their own individualism versus collectivism right yeah Okay. Okay, and that's a good point. That's a good point. But like the, the 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 I feel like the starting flame is maybe similar, and then yeah, Jefferson and the American way is individualistic. Everyone has the right to determine their own destiny, and the Marxism way is right. Everyone should have the best life possible, and the way to do that is everybody helping each other out. But it, where it gets tricky is when you force that. Right. Right. It's it's everybody help each other out, but then it's if you don't help us out in the way that we want you to help us out, or if you, you know, have a different idea, then we're just going to either put you in prison or kill you or force you at gunpoint to do the thing that is going to do the most good for the most people. Which is why it doesn't work. But we've, right. we've talked about before, probably not on here, but like ultimately Marx, Marx was an idealist as well. And what Marx is describing is essentially an impossible utopia. And then Jack Reed's whole delusion is he's chasing this impossible utopia, not realizing it's an impossible utopia. Right. But also the, the idea itself is also flawed and, in my opinion, immoral because it's like we're going to take away all like we're gonna, there's going to be no such thing as private property. There's going to be no such thing as your own personal property or wealth like that's all just going to be confiscated and distributed. Oh, no, no, no. Correct. Yeah. So like the, the, the reason it doesn't work is it doesn't take into account human nature. Like it's not realistic at all. But if everybody truly did of their own accord buy in it is quote perfect but no one ever is ever going to do that and actually it's also like you'd have to have a whole entire brainwashed society for it to work and everyone to be actually happy little drones going on uh, in it but right and they're never going to be because people are people right like you could still in theory be whatever you wanted to be but then right you're right the moment that doesn't help the quote commune then we got a problem <laughs> yeah well it's like it's just like you said, like in Doctor Zhivago, when like when they take over the house. Yeah, right. Because yeah. Anyway, so I still always get a little confused. I kind of want to break down a little bit of the socialism versus communism kind of. Yeah, it's it's all the same. Okay. Well, and you're not <laughs> you're not wrong. I think there is there. Yeah. Well, so there's you're not wrong, but there's a, a few little nuances I might try to draw. Slash, I don't really understand <laughs> the nuance. The, the I guess the two things I would say is. 
The reason it's hard to understand is there's actually never been a true communist country. They're all just extreme socialist countries because like a true communist wouldn't even have the leadership in place. So you couldn't have you wouldn't have a Stalin if it was truly communist because you wouldn't need a Stalin because it's just one giant commune of everybody helping each other. So the moment you actually have to have that direction from the top, it's not actually even communist anymore, probably. But yeah, so the a few random notes here. It's so like true communism would be little to no private property, like you were saying. The government slash the state slash the people themselves control all businesses. There's no social classes. That's why the whole comrade thing, the whole idea is that everyone is equal. Everyone is a comrade. And there are no hierarchies outside of that. And then like in theory, in communism, you, you in a true communist society, you wouldn't need money at all because you don't need to buy anything. You just get whatever you need and you're giving back whatever helps the community. So it is almost like a hive mind kind of yeah, it's thing. it's the Borg collective, it, right? It's, yes, yeah, is essentially <laughs> yes. That's pro- yeah. The communism is the Borg. So socialism, and even Marx said basically socialism is essentially a precursor to communism. So you still have money, but the goal of businesses is not profit, just kind of sustainability. It's almost like every business is a nonprofit owned by the workers or the state. So it's not quite fully there, but you would still get a salary. You would still get to choose what you wanted to buy and maybe choose what you wanted to do. But the means of production are kind of collectively owned more so than obviously capitalism. Right. So so again, it's a subtle distinction, but it's almost like a spectrum. Isn't it... uh... I don't know. Maybe I should look this up, or I'll, I'll just I'll just put the disclaimer on here that I, I don't actually know if this is a Lenin quote. But isn't there a Lenin quote that's like the goal of socialism is to institute communism? Like it's basically it's communism light, and it's like the stepping stone to go to communism. Is is the idea again? Again, I I, I did actually just mention like two minutes ago that Marx said socialism was a precursor to to communism. Oh, okay, that's a Marx thing. Okay, I thought I thought it was a Lenin thing, but it, yeah. well, and I'm sure I'm, Lenin probably talked about it as too, since they were all kind of yeah, these, uh, six of Marx, one, half yeah. dozen of the other, you right? Know? <laughs> you could you could rabbit hole this stuff like crazy because people will even talk about Leninism, Stalinism, Trotskyism, all as slightly oh, different yeah. versions of this whole thing. But yes, then at the end of the day, it is on an intellectual level at least, diametrically opposed to capitalism where private control, profit incentive are the things that are kind of driving control of the economy. And then the Marxist point of view is that that then inherently leads to exploitation where the workers who are actually doing all the work and creating the revenue are not getting the benefit. And it's just the bourgeoisie that is that owns everything that is benefiting from the labor class, which is why then all these movements are about getting the labor class to rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie. And that's and that's the proletariat is the, is the working class. So that's kind of all, all that. So when you get into the U.S., so I mentioned the Communist Manifesto was 1848. Uh, you get the first Socialist Party in the United States in 1876. And when that started getting a too, little too radical, a different party kind of refounded itself as the Socialist Party of America in 1901. Yeah, so all this stuff kind of gets lumped in together. So the powers that be were definitely very much like, we, aren't, we don't care about these distinctions. So they started basically saying, oh, if you workers want to go on strike to not have to work 10 days a, 10 days a week, 10 hours a day, <laughs> 10 hours a day, seven days a week, you're now communists. 
and we're gonna shut you down. So they, there's there was no there was no tolerance for any shades of gray in any of this. And and it also what also doesn't help the workers is that the extreme radical communist types who want a revolution are also the ones trying to instigate these unions to start. And when the unions do start or the strikes do happen, they're the first in line to kind of help. Even if the workers are like, well, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't want what you're selling, but we do want better working conditions and to not like lose our arms when we go down into the factory on a weekly yeah. basis or, or whatever. And so it all kind of starts to bleed together as you get into the early 20th century here. So people we've mentioned before on here, like Jack London and Helen Keller, they were socialists. I think Upton Sinclair was too. Didn't we talk about that's true. him being a, he, I, yeah, like ran as a socialist, like as a social, at, as part of the socialist party in uh, California politics. And, and these movements were incredibly popular. So we always, we've talked about before the 1912 election where Teddy Roosevelt comes back in to kind of third party Taft and Wilson ends up winning. That's 1912 election. Well, what we didn't mention was that also getting 6% of the popular vote was the socialist candidate, Eugene Debs. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very, very popular movement at the time to get that kind of traction. But because of what's happening elsewhere in the world, and then specifically when you get into the Russian Revolution, and holy crap, the people did just overthrow the czar. There was a very, very real threat that they were going to overthrow the U.S. government. And so that's when you get the first Red Scare in the 19-teens. Yes. And again, everyone's just kind of lumped together. So if you're, you want your seven-year-old to not go work in the coal mine, you're now a communist. Like, it's, like it's, it's all just lumped together. It was, and it, it, it's kind of on both sides. So, like, the government was, was lumping everyone together, basically, like... They were kind of had the view of if you're not a full throated supporter of the government, you are a communist. But that also, like on the other side, a lot of those groups or a lot of those people, like they were associates of each other, which will I'll, I'll get into a little bit when I when I talk about my people that I did my deep dives on. But specifically, like Emma Goldman, like she was she didn't necessarily she didn't consider herself a communist. She actually considered herself an anarchist. But she was friends with mm. all the communists and all the socialists and all and right. they were all like hanging out and talking about ideas together so even if they didn't all believe the same thing or give themselves the same labels the radical like political radicals at the time were all together like they even if they didn't believe the same thing they they were all still friends and and interacting with each other and giving you know speeches and and writing in each other's publications and stuff right they were all kind of called the radicals i guess what i'm what i was just kind of noting that then even though the you know the line worker who just wants better hours and better working conditions would then be lumped in by some people as also being part of them when they're like no dude i just don't want to die at my job please right right and that's and that's a that that is kind of a a tough thing too because yeah you have the the unions where it's you're right. It's like I work at a steel plant and, you know, I just want to have, you know, one day off a week. And so I'm kind of interested in this labor union thing. And me and the communist guy, we happen to agree that the labor union's a good thing, but not necessarily for the same reasons. And also the government, he wants to overthrow the government. I don't care about overthrowing the government. I just, yeah, I just I just want my one day off a week. <laughs> right. But right. then he shows up to the, the protests that I'm doing, and then that gives the government a reason to say, hey, you guys are all communists now. 
and you want to overthrow right. the government. Right. And sometimes it was the communists going in there trying to get the workers to strike and revolt. Right. Yeah. And having various degrees of success because the stigma wasn't there like it would be decades later yet. So the workers might be like, okay, yeah, this seems reasonable. Before right. it becomes kind of this extreme thing with uh, with the Cold War. I mean, we're not in the Cold War yet. We're not by a long right. shot. Yeah. And so, and so yeah, and then uh, the government would do raids. There's something called the Palmer Raids where they would crack down on suspected radicals, deporting any foreigners. A lot of them were foreigners, and so it was kind of easy to deport them back. And then honestly, it was, as we get, and this is kind of after the, the film here, we get to like the Great Depression and stuff. We basically just had bigger issues to deal with. The FBI does kind of acknowledge like, oh, yeah, those were actually probably it's probably unconstitutional that we were busting up these meetings like they were technically just meetings. Or it, I mean, at some point they crossed the line, maybe, but the, the FBI admitted they were maybe crossing a line. Um, and then so then everything kind of takes a backseat until World War Two with the Cold War and then the second Red Scare with McCarthyism and all that. Yeah. And actually, then before I talk about Reed, why don't you go ahead and talk about uh, Emma Goldman here then? And how she fits into that world. Yeah, so she um, she was a little older than than uh, than Reed was, which I get. You know, we we see that in the movie. She was actually born in 1869 in Lithuania, um, which at the time was part of the Russian Empire, and immigrated to the U.S. in 1885. So she was a you know a, a teenager when she when she moved to the U.S. She was involved in. Um, a lot of labor movements and radical political movements like anarchism throughout the late um, 19th century. In uh, 1892, she was actually involved in a plot to kill a steel plant manager named Henry Clay Frick. Well, this is some Molly Maguire stuff. Kind of, yeah, yeah. So it's with her, uh, with her longtime lover, though never married, Alexander Berkman. They organized. Well, she was almost certainly involved in planning and organizing it although there was never technically any evidence found like they police raided her home afterwards and like they didn't find any evidence but like the guy that she's romantically involved with and is like best friends with for decades does this assassination that's politically motivated and she didn't know anything about it like come on Hmm. so it, it was in retaliation for what was called the homestead strike so in homestead pennsylvania there was a strike at a steel plant where this guy, Henry Frick, was the plant manager. There was a strike. He brought in Pinkertons, actually, to help break up the strike and to protect the strike breakers that he brought in. And there was this, like, massive riot. Uh, Seven Pinkertons were killed and uh, nine of the striking workers were killed. And what year was this? Because we're probably only a couple decades after the Molly McGuire's story. This is 1892. Right, so like basically twenty years after the Molly Maguire stuff, or less, fifteen years. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, and in the same area too. No, right, yeah. It's, this is in this is a steel steel plant in Pennsylvania. So this is all still the same world. All just an extension of that. Yeah, yeah. So Goldman and Berkman get this idea to kill Frick, and thinking that if we kill him, it will kind of ignite the spark of revolution and get the workers to you know to rise up and demand their you know better conditions and it'll it'll propel their cause of the workers but the assassination fails apparently this berkman guy is a terrible shot because he shoots the guy twice and then stabs him four times and he lives and not only did the guy not die he was back at work the next week (laughs) (laughs) and then also 
and this is kind of it's it's not funny but it kind of is because nobody nobody ends up dying so this is kind of funny actually uh so the guy that they're trying to kill doesn't die and then instead of the workers like jordan with him and be like oh wow you know oh you're trying to kill our boss that's great you know we're striking too let's you know let's you know viva love revolution or whatever the steel workers that are there just beat the shit out of him <laughs> <laughs> and stop him from stabbing him more so like they like intervene and save the, their boss's life huh. berkman is sentenced to 22 years in prison and then also that assassination attempt kind of it has the opposite effect of what was intended it basically kills that whole strike because now it's a so like that movement is associated with the violence right and so they're like oh well, we can't really be striking now because now it, you know this guy almost murdered our boss so now it kind of looks like we're lumped in with this guy and we don't we don't want that so yeah basically had the the exact opposite effect of what was intended hmm. in 1901 when President McKinley was assassinated, the assassin, Leon Shalgosh, claimed that he was inspired to kill the president after hearing a speech given by Emma Goldman. Oh. So she was actually arrested, and during Shalgosh's interrogation, he he said, well, she didn't help me plan it or anything. She wasn't involved in any way. She didn't tell me to kill him. She was just making a lot of good points, and that inspired me to kill him. But that was enough to get her arrested, basically. And she spent two weeks in detention and was was later released. But yeah, so she was kind of indirectly connected to the McKinley assassination. Well, I guess I didn't think about that as far as like the... So like McKinley was essentially... We talk about these radical anarchist movements of the early 20th century. That's essentially why McKinley was assassinated, because it was an anarchist thing? Yes. That's crazy, yeah. And that's why... So, is this going to come out before we talk about Killers of the Flower Moon? Yes. Okay, so this is a little preview, I guess, for that episode. But we talked in that episode, which actually was recorded last week, about the formation of the FBI in response to this, you know, radical political violence. And this is exactly, this is exactly it. Okay. We need to we need to hunt out these movements before they can pull off assassinations. Therefore, we need an investigative bureau. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Teddy Roosevelt, you know, brand new to the presidency, you know, starts establishing like the the FBI and getting the Secret Service more involved in presidential protection. Like that's this is the time period, and and the reason for that is because of this political violence. So uh, in 1906, um, she publishes. The first issue of the magazine Mother Earth, which is an outlet for radical, political, and anarchist ideas, a magazine that she ran for several years. Throughout the 19-teens, she advocated for various causes like workers' rights, women's rights, specifically for women's right to vote because they didn't, uh, there was no uh, women's suffrage yet, and for birth control. And then also just for free speech in general. She was big into like, you know, free speech movement. In 1917, she was arrested and actually spent two years in jail for anti-conscription activities, which we see in the movie. And then she was deported to Russia in 1919, also like we see in the movie. 
And she was foreign born. So I mentioned the Palmer raids and people getting booted. She was not an American, or even if she had become an American citizen, they could kind of use her foreign bornness as a reason to, like, yeah, you're out of here. We're done with you. Right. Yeah. Okay. And she actually kind of raised a good point. She was like, I'm technically just as much of an American as anybody else. So the fact that I'm being deported should be a red flag, mm. uh, no pun intended, should be a red <laughs> flag to everybody else in the United States. Like, hey, this is this is not okay. Because of free speech and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Right, right. So, yeah, so she got deported in 1919. And wouldn't you know it, she initially is a big fan of the Bolshevik government before she gets deported and has to live under it. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, quickly becomes disillusioned uh, with the Bolshevik government in Russia. She actually writes a couple books about her disillusioned with the Bolshevik government. For a lot of the rest of the 20s, she lived in various European countries. She ended up leaving Russia. um, And she ended up, she kind of moved around Europe, lived in Germany, France, and the UK for a while, all while continuing her uh, activism for her various social causes. And then in 1927, ends up moving to Canada, where she kept writing and speaking, focusing on anarchism and feminism. Um, She was allowed to come back into the U.S. for speaking tours, provided Mm. that she didn't comment on any current political uh, events. Basically, it's they said, you can talk about your life. You can talk about, like, the ideas of feminism but you can't make any calls to action and you can't comment on any political current events. Okay. You can only talk huh. about the past, basically. Interesting. Which, yeah, was kind of <laughs> kind of the antithesis of the free speech that she was uh, a, a big proponent of. She ended up living until May of 1940 when she died in Toronto. Um, and then she was, the U.S. government did allow her to be buried in the U.S. So she's buried in Illinois, uh, just outside of Chicago. Like we mentioned, I don't know if we talked about this on air either, but she does appear in the play Ragtime. So she uh, doesn't make it into the movie at all, but in the musical, um, she shows up in a few a few different scenes. She, she's not like a hugely, like she's not a main character or anything. Not like a, oh my gosh, what's the the made up black terrorist guy? <laughs> what was his name? I don't remember. <laughs> oh, damn. All right. Uh, Cole House Walker. That's the one. I knew it was a cool name. I know, I know. I was, I was, trying, I was like, man, what is it? <laughs> yeah, so not not uh, not as much you know involvement in the story as like a Cole House Walker, but well, I think my mom said she radicalizes brother in the in the film when he kind of joins and becomes like a terrorist with the bombing and stuff. Okay, that it's it's it's, it's supposedly it's an Emmett Goldman speech that inspires brother to become an anarchist, which is very fitting with like you said, the guy who killed McKinley, basically saying the same thing. Yeah. Okay, that yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, she's also a character in another Stephen Sondheim musical, which Stephen Sondheim did the music for Reds. Mm. So he wrote a musical called Assassins about the McKinley assassination, and she's also a character in in that musical as well. And then, like we mentioned earlier, uh, she's portrayed in the movie by Maureen Stapleton, and that portrayal won Stapleton the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress that year. Right, which is weird again because she's good but it's just she's just in it so little it doesn't even play like a huge role like it's it's just and it's it's a very understated performance it just seemed a weird thing for the oscars to go for i guess yeah yeah 
And you get similar things if you think of like Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love or, you know, just roles like that where you're, but even then she kind of stands out when she's on screen. Stapleton doesn't stand right. out when she's on the screen here. She's just, she's just in the movie. Right. It's, it's the opposite of Linda Hunt in Year of Living Dangerously where yes. that's like a, a performance where it's like not the main character at all, but steals the show every time right. she's on screen. Right. This is kind of the opposite. She's on screen for maybe five minutes. Honestly, is the simple answer is that this was her lifetime achievement Oscar because she had been nominated like three times previously and never won. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. So I almost feel like this is this is uh, her Al Pacino getting it for scent of a woman kind of thing. We're just like, okay. yeah, yeah. Give it to Stapleton. We've, we've loved her forever. So she gotcha. gets the Oscar this year. It, that's what it feels like now that I think about it. Okay. Yeah, so this is the world in which we find Jack Reed, our main character here today. And what's crazy is a little bit, and spoiler alert for him dying young, but uh, it's crazy to think that uh, at 44 years old, Warren Beatty is about 12 years too old to play Jack Reed because he dies when he's Mm. 32, which is just insane to think about all he was doing and and the, the not power he had but the influence i guess he had at such a young age oh wow yeah i guess i didn't realize that he that that character was supposed to be that young because like yeah. we, you see him in the movie and like you know yes he dies young like he you know as in his 40s like that is dying young but yeah it, it would it would be more i guess impactful or impressive is maybe not the right word but to see someone who's actually that age doing that yeah yeah just it's just again just someone who still seems like a kid almost in some right. ways to compare to the characters to compare to a goldman for sure and stuff like that and i feel like it, that would explain the naivety or, or maybe make the the idealism a little bit easier yes, to believe and digest right. and understand is if the care if the guy playing the character was in his 20s right which he would have been in the right. in the middle of the teens there so yeah reed was born in portland oregon 1887 and just to give Rebecca some Portland-specific information about me being born <laughs> in Portland here. So uh, Southwest Green Avenue uh, is named after Reed's grandpa uh, on his mom's side, obviously. And then there's a bench in Washington Park dedicated to Reed that reportedly like overlooks the site of uh, where the mansion he was born in used to be. And yes, mansion. So even though he's this big communist advocator you know, wants everybody to be equal and call each other comrade or whatever. He was born rich, like literally born in a mansion. His uh, his mom's side was very wealthy from all the business uh, interests that her father was uh, uh, involved with. And then, and then Reed's dad moves from the East Coast to get involved in that same business world. So yeah, definitely not the upbringing you would picture for this big communist. Uh, no, that's actually exactly the upbringing that I would picture oh, oh, is because it? it's all, oh my gosh, it's always the spoiled rich kids who do like, oh, okay, okay. The, they get, get the idealism and then want to help and then just think they're helping the people because they know better kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like the, it's like the fake, it's like the fake starving artist thing that you see. Mm. It's like so ubiquitous that actually tracks perfectly with that, that kind of person. And I'm going to stab you a little bit by saying like, oh, kind of like Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> okay, I don't know, okay. but not. No, 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 no. Because Roosevelt's not a communist. No, no, no. But I'm saying he's a he's a rich guy who then got into the kind of like, quote, poorer world because he wanted to. He thought that was fun. 
Oh, right. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. And that's, if you recall, that's why the ranchers, the actual cowboys didn't like him when he first showed up in South Dakota. Because he's like, this, this, this is a fake rich kid who's just trying to slum it. Right. Which it kind of was. But then he ultimately, he ultimately wins them over because he's actually good at it. Versus... Right, because he ends up being actually a hard worker and doing stuff like staying up for two days, you know, with holding the rifle on the boat thieves to bring him into town and like, and actually, you know, going out and doing hard work. Whereas this guy, he he's a, a turns into a professional complainer. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's, that's probably about right. So uh, growing up, Reed wasn't the best student, but he was a good writer, good athlete. He gets into Harvard with his dad kind of pushing him to, you know, you need to go out to Harvard, do something good. Uh, he's actually very popular. He's charismatic, good looking, involved in like every activity. But Harvard is where he starts attending socialist meetings. But they would propose various changes, you know, and advocating for like uh, servants at Harvard to get paid living wages and just kind of very involved politically with what was going on in the East Coast in the country at the time. And this, yeah, basically his eyes were open that there was a whole world out there beyond just school clubs and, and sports. And so after college, he starts working in magazines uh, in New York City, living in Greenwich Village. In 1913, he started working for a magazine called The Masses, whose editor was Max, uh, Max Eastman, who we do see, uh, we do see in the film. Uh, played by Edward Herman, who I recognize as the grandpa from Gilmore Girls. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, basically, the more agitated Reed saw the powers to be got. So like, basically, as all this, this radical stuff is going on, the madder the, you know, quote, bourgeoisie got, the more convinced Reed became they were on the right track. Basically, if we're, if we're, making, if we're making the people in charge mad and nervous we must be on the right track and he would kind of keep doubling down and getting radicalized more because of that <laughs> which side note kind of sounds like maga in a way look at how pissed the liberals are we must be doing something right dig 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 <laughs> just kind of in the other direction um anyway i'll probably cut that <laughs> yes yeah, no, no no well it's it's uh it's almost like just basing your political opinions on what makes the other side mad is not helpful <laughs> so, yeah yeah so uh 1913 is also the first year here first time reed gets arrested for advocating for workers rights we again we mentioned the police would come in and break up a lot of these meetings or strikes and all those kinds of things so reed starts getting arrested when he's involved with these he's also ex uh, writing extensively about the Me mexican revolution he was a big fan of pancho villa so it was kind of like a journalist too so it wasn't just the communist stuff he was writing about just what was going on in the world. World War I breaks out. Reed goes to Italy to write about it. So he's kind of this frontline reporter who's always got a mind to what the ordinary person is, is going through. Oh, uh, during World War I, though, he was basically against everyone. Like, he just didn't... He said every, all sides are motivated by the greed of those in power, and this whole war is dumb. And he travels around Europe, ends up in Russia with just kind of going all over various friends and women and he's writing about the war from all different perspectives and that's when he returns home and meets louise bryant in portland so you i don't really know if the film gives us a sense that he had just gotten back from years traveling over in europe oh i guess that's why they're bringing him into talk in the film though right because he's seen all these things on the front lines and so that's why they're having him speak at that event at the beginning of the film is because he's been a first-hand witness 
I, I think they kind of maybe mentioned that, but I, I think you're right. But I, I, I think then they, they play it later on then like when he, when they get on, when, like when they're on the train going into Russia and they're seeing like all the, you know, at, basically after their first breakup and then he goes to, to convince Luis to go to Russia with him. Oh, right. They're playing it like it's the first time. Then he's acting like it's the first time he's ever seen like the front of a war. Okay, you're right. So you're right. That wouldn't be accurate then, because yeah, he would have he would have been over there, all over the place. Yeah, Italy. He would have been everywhere basically already before he even meets Louise. And then when he's going over in the film, it's like like he's going back over, uh, not for the first time. And so yeah, we don't know exactly how he and Louise met. The thing in the film is maybe a good enough example of how they might have met. And then they do start this affair because she's already married, and he convinces her to go to Greenwich Village in New York City with him from Portland. So now I want to rewind and tell Louise's life up to this point, because obviously from after they meet, it's kind of their own story. It's kind of their story together. Yeah. So she was born in San Francisco. She's actually a year or two older than than Reed. She grew up in Nevada. Uh, Her father was a journalist who was interested in these labor movements, but he wasn't really in her life. He was a drunk who abandoned the family when she was pretty young. Bryant is actually her stepfather's last name. She never legally changed her name, but from I, I think even as like early as twelve, she just kind of started taking her stepfather's last name on documents when she was writing and stuff. When she was twenty, she wrote a short story called "The Way of the Flirt" or "The Way of a Flirt," which is just kind of interesting with the very free spirit we see her be. It's almost like she's a hippie, but in the nineteen teens. Yeah, as far as like how you might view that. So she ends up in Oregon. So she grows up in Nevada, ends up in Oregon, because that's where her brother was. And she's at Eugene, University of Oregon. She's definitely a free spirit on campus, reportedly the first girl to wear rouge on campus. She wore clothes that the staff considered inappropriate, had multiple boyfriends and no qualms about that. So very much just a free spirit kind of hippie child, but in the 19 teens. And so she's just, and and you get that in the film that she's like, oh, she's. Not what you think of when you think of this time period. She graduates in 1909 with a degree in history, becomes a journalist in Portland. She's active in women's suffrage movements. In 1909, uh, so she would be 24, she marries a dentist named Paul Trulinger, who was interested in art. He also liked to party. And that would sometimes include inviting everyone over to the dentist's office so they would all get high on the ether. All right. My kind of dentist. (laughs) (laughs) So she was already familiar with the Masses magazine before she met Reed. And then, yes, then they that's where they then meet in Portland because she was there working as, as a journalist. So however they met, they meet, start an affair. And she's, yeah, kind of leaves the husband. So then back to them together living in new york actually we can probably pause here for a second if you want to give us a little rundown of greenwich village itself at the time yeah because that's where they've now moved to yeah i did i did i did a little have a couple uh couple little bullet point notes on it so greenwich village itself uh at the time in the early 20th century uh was kind of the melting pot of artists and writers and performers and thinkers and political radicals that we see um, in the movie. They were kind of all friends with each other. Political discussions and debates 
in the village were actually crucial to the beginnings of the American labor movement and to the IWW, which they mentioned several times um, in the movies, the industrial workers of the world. It was ground zero for a lot of uh, activism for different movements like the free speech movement, different women's rights movements, like I talked about uh, Emma Goldman with women's suffrage, birth control, different uh, other civil liberties movements. Also, all of that at the time was intertwined with the art of of the day as well. So playwrights like Eugene O'Neill, different authors, art like painters, um, composers, just tons of people were all hanging out in Greenwich Village. And it it kind of is even that way today. It becomes kind of a a hub for like civil rights thought um, in like the mid 20th century. And then in like the mid to late 20th century, a lot of like LGBT activism mm. has its kind of traces its foundings back to Greenwich Village, especially like the Stonewall riots, which I think was in the 1960s or 70s. That's okay that's in Greenwich Village. But yeah, so just a kind of a, a hub of free thinking, artsy types and all of the political radicals that are also it and they're all they're all hanging out to, together they're like they're in the coffee shops they're in the art houses they're in the playhouses making art watching art and then also discussing all of their their ideas right and a lot of this movie is it's very kind of conversation driven about and just kind of shows them having a lot of these you know conversations and philosophical debates and it is an interesting glimpse into that world it also reminds me of midnight in paris where it all kind of seems like hmm. it's gertrude stein's apartment where everyone kind of goes to hang in and out and write and discuss and that's only about i mean five ten years later than the film right. here today over in paris yeah similar kind of vibe so yeah as we see in the film reed did support wilson for re-election uh he does marry louise uh he does get a kidney removed all that stuff is accurate uh the getting the the kidney removed actually saved him from being drafted although he had planned on applying for conscientious objector status anyway um, but he didn't have to worry about it because he not only had one kidney. By the time the U.S. entered the war, though, he was one of the lone anti-war uh, voices kind of that kept speaking out against it. So obviously we were against it at first, but as we kind of got to where we're now in it, he was now in the minority that wasn't still on board. And it kind of derailed his career because of that because he was still writing against it. And everyone's like, um... Yeah, we're over that. We're going to war now, so you can shut up. Like it kind of right. It ends up hurting, kind of hurting him, hurting him financially. Well, that was uh, hang on. I I want to. I gotta go check my notes because I'm pretty sure that that was an Upton Sinclair thing as well. Oh, okay. Uh, so Upton Sinclair also left the Socialist Party. He ended up coming back, but he left because. The Socialist Party, like as part of their platform, actually supported America's entry of World War One. After, so I think it was kind of a similar thing with Reed, where they were like, "Oh, okay, yeah, we're, you know, we don't want to be in the war. We don't want to be in the war." Like Wilson, hey, yeah, that's that's great, you know, that you're keeping us out of the war. But then Wilson basically makes the case enough that, hey, you know, because of our, you know, our our economic interests and because of the submarine warfare stuff. Like we really need to get in this war, and they were like, "All right, yeah, let's let's do it." And uh, Upton Sinclair was the same way; he actually left the Socialist Party because the Socialist Party ended up supporting the entry of uh, mm. the U.S. into the war, and he personally did not. Yes, and actually, yeah, it's almost, I'm trying to think. It's almost surprising he doesn't 
get a mention or something. They mentioned so many names in this film, though, too. It's, it's like I think it's because he was out west. Okay, right, right. He wouldn't have been in the New York scene. He would have been more in the California scene at this time. Yeah, we should say, like, there's so many historical figures and just real life people in this film and we're kind of only talking about a very select few just for, just for time and we're still going to go along here so one of the big things the movie simplify again it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty accurate depiction of these characters but uh we mentioned that it doesn't seem to illustrate how reed was over extensively before the war and before he meets bryant but there's also just even after they meet there's just more back and forth there's more trips over to Europe and back home, back and forth. There's more affairs than they even have in the film. Like, there's whole other <laughs> famous artists and stuff that she gets involved with. And another thing kind of tied into that Greenwich Village thing is like, so they're, they start living together, obviously, before they're married, which you think 100 years ago was a bigger deal. Well, it wasn't a big deal in Greenwich Village. It was very much right. this, it, it, kind of this proto-hippie movement with kind of the free love. Everyone could just do whatever they want it's all fine as long as no one's hurting anybody attitude even in the 19 teens there in greenwich village so yes ignoring kind of all the relationship stuff for now they uh were first-hand witnesses to the october revolution and take over by the bolsheviks in russia and like kind of they kind of we kind of talked about before it's been a while but you kind of a lot of <laughs> it was a lot going on it wasn't as simple as the czar's in power. The next day, the Bolsheviks are in power. <laughs> that is not what happened. Like, it's <laughs> a much slower process. And first, you kind of have the people rise up and the czar abdicating and getting taken into custody. But so basically, there's the February Revolution and then the October Revolution. So right. February, so the, so the oversimplified version, and some of this is kind of just from memory when we did it before. But February Revolution is the big people rising up movement and like, hey, the... Czar is no longer in power. October Revolution, six months later, or actually, what would that be? Eight months later is when the Bolsheviks then take power. Yeah. So that's kind of the two two revolutions. So Reed and Bryant were over there as that was all happening. As the October Revolution is happening, they are there. So Reed meets Lenin and Trotsky, and 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 they see Reed as an ally mm-hmm. who's kind of a, a, a kindred spirit in what they're trying to do there. So. We we see him get disillusioned, obviously, because he, he he's he's an idealist, and the Bolsheviks are not living up to his ideals uh, with the way they're doing things, to say the least. And the film kind of shows him running away and then getting arrested by the Finnish. So he was captured by Finland when he's trying to get back to the United States, but I couldn't find anything that said it was because he was running or fleeing from Russia. So what was the the call like why did they detain him like was it like an just an immigration thing or what i think i mean more that or he is coming from soviet russia so like that is that is an issue uh okay Um, yeah but i think he was just heading back home like i don't think it was any big thing necessarily Mm. and then back in back stateside reed and bryant were defending the bolsheviks to an american audience kind of saying like hey they're actually doing good things over there they haven't been completely disillusioned yet i guess Bryant did testify before the Senate, as we see in the film. It also says Reed testified as well, which I don't remember them showing that. I thought they just showed her testify. At the, yeah, I, I think it'll, yeah, it just shows, just shows her. Okay. He, he testified as well. Um, basically, they end up avoiding any trouble on the grounds of free speech. Their lawyers successfully do defend, like, hey, they can say whatever they want. This is America. And, and they are, they're not imprisoned or anything. 
And the split we see with the U.S. Communist Party, that's basically true too. One communist paper actually called Reed Jack the Liar to give you an idea of like what even some of his own friends and uh, former friends maybe thought about him. That's something else too that I, it relates to what you're talking about, but I, something I forgot to mention um, in the Emma Goldman stuff was during this time, her whole thing with anarchism started to get a lot less popular because it was so okay with violence. Mm. And so a lot of the, basically the, what would be called like the, you know, political radicals or the radical left, whatever, shifted more to like a socialism as their label rather than like anarchism. So that they don't necessarily show that specific thing in the movie, but they do show that there is a lot of like political infighting as to how exactly they want to, you know, label themselves and implement their ideas. Like there's a lot of uh, a lot of tension there among these radical movements. Well, a significant thing they show in the film, and I think this did happen, again, I'm, I didn't write it down, but I'm pretty sure this happened as well. Like, when he and his group crashed the Socialist National Convention. So we mentioned the Socialist Party is putting up pre- candidates for president. They're having right. national conventions just like the Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. And then Reed's contingency crashes that convention. That's true. And it is because of all these splits and... They want the kind of communist revolution thing, and the socialists are trying to walk that back to separate themselves from the violent wing and all that kind of stuff. And Reed is the kind of idealist that thinks that that revolution may actually be necessary. So, again, it's it's like I think he personally isn't a violent person, but he's, I think, willing to have the workers rise up and overthrow the government, which is, again, why the government is so uh, nervous about him, because he is, he is willing to go there. And yeah, Reed even kind of believes that, yeah, we might have to have like a temporary communist dictatorship before we transition into a true democracy among equals. Like, yeah, that's just kind of the ideal he he was like he wanted ask the Russians how well that works out. Exactly. No, exactly. He's <laughs> so at, at the end of the day, he's just very, very naive. And I don't know to what extent is I mean, yeah, he he's definitely a radical. And but to what extent was or I guess I should say, to what extent are we informed by the failures of the communist state in the Soviet state? So I guess it was easier for him to be idealistic and naive than, and now you're just an idiot if you think that can actually work, versus like he hadn't seen it fail yet. So I guess maybe like he, there's reason for hope. I don't know. I Maybe, but also like, it's also, it's just wrong to take people's personal stuff. And so like, if that's, if that's your ideal, if that's like your your base of your idealism, then you're just wrong. Like that's not well, right? Or or win at the ballot box, not by overthrowing the government. <laughs> I guess, yeah, 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 yeah. And again, something like that's never going to win at the ballot box, <laughs> yeah. which I guess is why he wanted the revolution. But again, he's just saying it so naively and arrogantly. To your point, thinking he knows best the whole the whole time that yeah, I'm I'm doing it for these other people. And those people are just like, we don't not interested. like you. Yeah, we're not interested <laughs> in that. But yeah, that's why he gets so excited when he sees it happening over in Russia. But yeah, he's just kind of the constant I- idealist. But yes, ultimately, he's just completely disillusioned with the Bolsheviks and does continue to hold his own communist ideals. He's, he, again, he's, he's, he is a constant idealist, which is in a way... <laughs> commendable to be but at the same time like he just never sees the error of his ways i guess and it's kind of maybe even the whole point of the film is like even when the bolsheviks it's not working 
he doesn't become disillusioned with communism. <laughs> he right. becomes disillusioned with the Bolsheviks and like, oh, right. they're not really what I, they're not what I want. I still want this thing. And he just never, it never occurs to him. Yeah, that's never going to happen anywhere on the planet. Like you, how do you not see that? Right, because that that is the that's the logical end state of what happens when you implement communism. Right, and he refuses to accept that. Exactly. Right. Right. He then gets he, he ends up getting sick and in poor health over in Russia. Um, I feel like the film made it seem like a chronic thing that might have been tied to the kidney thing. That like, oh, he's just kind of run himself ragged, and he's in kind of like chronic poor health, and then he ultimately dies when Luis is out of the room yeah because they uh they talk about uh well the doctor tells him like oh you can't have any salt like it's you know you got to keep your sodium low like it's bad for your kidneys but then he you know is telling the doctor when he's in the prison like the only thing they give me is this like pickled like salty fish or whatever mm. and you know it's just it basically was like the worst thing that he could be eating and it's, yeah it's just kind of doing a number on his one kidney but no, he basically just from like, and probably from like traveling on all these like crowded trains and stuff, he just contracted spotted typhoid, which is basically a, like a parasitic bacterial infection. And they couldn't get medicine to him because there was an American blockade against the Soviets. Like, huh. it was nothing to do with his previous kidney thing. He just oh got typhoid. Oh, that's that's interesting. Right. I don't know why. That, it's a weird thing to change other than I guess, you know, I don't know. It's like, oh, it seems too, it's too uh, deus ex machina to just have him suddenly get sick and die. Well, yeah, he just like got suddenly sick and died. But it took like a month. Like it was kind of like he was dying, and so that's the thing too. They make they have Louise kind of out of the room, going to get him some water, and then she comes back, and he has died in like the three minutes that it took her to go get water. Yeah, but like really, he was slowly dying of typhoid for a month, and she knew he was dying. He knew he was dying, and they just couldn't get the medicine, and so he actually died again, very similar in the film as far as like in this like Soviet hospital bed. But, like, over the course of a month, and when he finally dies, like, Louise is there holding his hand as he passes. Like, it just seems weird to not... It was a weird change, I thought, to to get, to kind of make. Yeah, that is a strange change to make. Right, because the film makes it sound like, oh, crap, he died? Right. I didn't know he was that sick. It's like, no, 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 yeah. she knew he was dying. Right. So, just bizarre. So, yeah, Reed is one of four Americans buried in the Kremlin Wall Necropolis, basically a kind of a place of honor for Soviets. Hmm. Up through about 1985, they were still burying famous or important people there. Um, That's where, like, Lenin and Stalin are, is at that Kremlin Wall Necropolis. So, yeah, Hmm. Reed is one of only four Americans there. And his most famous work, which is mentioned in the film, is 10 Days That Shook the World, about the... October Revolution from his firsthand account. Louise, after Reed dies, she actually had a heart attack at Reed's funeral. No way. Yeah, yeah, she survived, but like, yeah. So, yeah, it, again, I get, they leave it out because the movie kind of ends. But yeah, at his funeral, she has a heart attack. Life was just rough then, man. Because um, she was only she was only uh, she was just shy of thirty five. And has a heart attack at his funeral. Jeez. Uh, she later married one William Bullitt, who was actually a Paramount Pictures executive. And huh. she was trying to convince him to make 10 Days That Shook the World into a movie, which Paramount ultimately didn't. But our old friend Sergei Eisenstein did. Mm-hmm. Did do the movie version of it. So, but Bullitt was also like, just he's kind of like an executive everywhere. So he was also later the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. 
So he did huh. sympathize a lot with Brian's causes. And so like there was definitely a connection between the two. He ends up being her third husband. She continued to write and travel all over the world, you know, throughout the rest of her life, particularly anywhere there was like political upheaval. So she was in Italy writing about Mussolini like well before World War II. Um, she was in Turkey when the Ottoman Empire fell or after the Empire fell and they're establishing their kind of first or Turkish independence kind of away from the Ottoman Empire. She's yeah. there writing about it firsthand. In 1924, she has her first and only child uh, with Bullet here uh, named Anna. They also adopted an eight-year-old Turkish boy the following year. Hmm. Biographers of Bryant are kind of puzzled why she married Bullet in the first place. So, like, she's this big, you know, commie, and she marries the crazy rich guy. And is, like, enjoying that life and still ordering servants around and stuff. And yeah. <laughs> doesn't have... It's, that tracks 100%. I, that, <laughs> it's, it's not, like, that's, uh, that is not surprising to me at all that these people are just... They're just, they're like fake communist, like wannabe revolutionary. They're like, you know what it reminds me of? Posers. It's like, they're posers. Yeah. It's like the fake resistance libs on Twitter who like tweet their little snarky revolutionary bullshit. But like, that's, that's as far as their activism goes. And then they also have no problem with any of the trappings of the wonderful capitalist society that they live in. Right, is it? It's Al Gore flying his private jets to talk about how you shouldn't fly private jets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's. This is why I one of the, one of the reasons why I dislike this movie so much was because I just I just I didn't even know that this this stuff like I didn't know that the dude grew up rich. I didn't know that she later went on to marry the rich guy and have the nice fancy lifestyle. But I just knew in my bones that that's <laughs> the kind of people that these people are. Right, right. They're nothing if not hypocrites. Yes. So Bryant then continued, uh, she struggled with alcohol. Uh, she actually had a same-sex affair. And so Bullet ends up divorcing her in 1930 and getting sole custody of their daughter. And then Bryant died in 1936 of a brain hemorrhage uh, at the age of 50. So yeah, they kind of don't think about like, just like smoking and alcohol. I mean, drugs aside, just smoking and alcohol was just probably kind of constant. I mean, they, they don't, I mean, I didn't read that that was the cause of her heart attack and brain hemorrhage, but it kind of would track that if she's just kind of chain smoking and always drinking, yeah. she wasn't in the best of health. Um, and then there's the stress of being around all these revolutions and she's probably in danger a lot. And anyway, in, uh, in 2004, her daughter donated all of her personal like notes and papers to Yale university. So they kind of have, like an archive of all of, Louise's Bryant's like personal writings are at the University of Yale uh, today. Why Yale? I think that you know, colleges less less like having this kind of stuff. So I don't think there's necessarily a connection other than that's the mm. university her daughter gave the stuff to. I mean, I okay. don't, I don't, I don't know a, a strong connection there. They show us in the film. Uh, I don't know how to say it. Croton or Croton on Hudson, uh, which is kind of just a community upstate from uh, New York City uh, on the on the on the Hudson there. And that's kind of where they, they show it a lot of times where they, they have like, when they have their house in the country, that yeah. seems to be this uh, Croton, Croton on Hudson Place. Uh, that's, that's the town where it is. But they also had a uh, house in Cape Cod. Uh, so I think that, again, they simplified instead of showing them sometimes at Cape Cod and sometimes at uh, Croton on Hudson, they just kind of made it all on the Hudson there. And that's, yeah, that's, that's basically it. The one person I was going to mention real quick that kind of ties in to this time period that is worth mentioning in case we want to include her in a later tournament 
you mentioned, you know, the birth control uh, movements. So when Reed was struggling for money as World War I began and his career kind of tanked because he was still riding out against the war, uh, he ends up selling their Cape Cod home to one Margaret Sanger, who is basically the big women's right birth control advocate of the early 20th century. And so this is kind of something we, you know, a little side note here real quick. We kind of forget like, uh, oh, I forgot. The, I should have wrote down the name of the laws. I had, I had heard of the laws uh, that they they meant they cited, but in 1870s, birth control was outlawed in the United States. Like hmm. you you couldn't you couldn't use it. You couldn't disseminate it. Like if married couple, actually, here's the quote I wrote from an article about it. Um, quote: Married couples could be arrested for using birth control in the privacy of their own bedrooms. Like Jeez. it was illegal, illegal. And so Sanger was kind of like the first person to successfully start challenging these laws by like basically openly oh yeah this stuff's illegal i'm still gonna open up a shop and start selling this stuff and get arrested for it and kind of make that all public that kind of says like this should not be illegal and we need to get these laws changed and her her name actually came up a lot in the uh the stuff that i was reading about emma goldman they were like yeah friends and like both were were big into the yeah like the the well nationwide but definitely in the northeast like the northeast women's liberation women's rights birth control movement right right she probably would have been considered a radical at the same time too her reputation today is is saved by because her focus was women's rights not anarchy so yeah her her reputation is a little uh a little more pristine today no like she essentially started what evolved into planned parenthood she is basically credited with I don't think she coined it, but she popularized the term birth control. Like, when those laws were outlawing right. it, they didn't use the term birth control. She's the one who basically got everyone using the term birth control, you know, 100 years ago. So just a huge advocate uh, for that, like I said. So she did come up, like I said, in your research and in my research, just because she bought Reed's home at one point. So there was kind of a connection there. And like you said, she would have been in this community. And you said you said that her her reputation is a little bit better received, I guess. We should qualify that by saying it depends on on what uh, well, political circles you're you're talking in because you're right she is the uh, kind of the the mother of Planned Parenthood which obviously has different connotations on one side of the aisle than it does on on the other right well right 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 of course again I mean like the, the voters and the politicians like, so we're we're recording this the week that Ohio just uh, voted to protect abortion rights in that state so a lot of these Republican states are still voting for protecting abortion rights and abortion access. So the percent is fairly small because it's not as simple as the right is against Planned Parenthood and the left is for it because apparently when it comes down to actually the ballot box, people are overwhelmingly in support of protecting those rights. Anyway, so yeah, she's just kind of an early advocate there that I thought was worth worth mentioning. Let's see. So I guess finally here, <laughs> you have a... Brief version of uh, Eugene O'Neill, to, who kind of pops up. And to me, he's just the most famous name in the whole film, or at least the f- name I was the most familiar with, even though I'm not super familiar with his writings. Yeah, and he uh, is probably my my favorite character. I, I don't know how much of that is because of just that one scene. Pro- that's probably most of it. But also, Jack Nichols is just so good. And he's right. also is one that he only has like maybe... Less than ten minutes of screen time. I think he probably has more right. than Emma Goldman does, but it's not a lot. Right. He's more what you expect from a supporting actor when where 
he kind of comes on. It's like he pops when he's on this on yeah. the screen versus I didn't feel like Emma Goldman did did as much. And, and Jack was nominated, but he did not win for this yeah. performance. And I'm, I'm man, I'm just I just love Jack Nichols so much. He's he's so good. Well, no, right, right. There's a little <laughs> bit of that though. He's kind of kind of what we said with uh, Matt Smith. Jack Nicholson is just kind of always Jack Nicholson, but it's always fun because. But Jack in a Nicholson. good, yeah, in a good way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he, so he, uh, he plays Eugene O'Neill in the movie, uh, who in real life was born in 1888 in New York. He had kind of a troubled upbringing. He grew up with an alcoholic father and a morphine addicted mother, and apparently, and I, I don't know because I, I haven't seen any of his plays or read any of his work, but apparently that informs a lot of his later work it's it's kind of darker and grittier and focuses more on kind of the fringes of society which at the time that he was writing a lot of this stuff was not that wasn't a a popular thing to do yet but growing up he went to several different catholic boarding schools Um, he actually attended princeton for one year during the time that woodrow wilson was a professor there which i think is kind of an interesting little uh historical connection yeah after leaving school he spent several years working and traveling on different ships and was actually a member of the uh, marine transport workers union which was part of the iww so he was involved in the labor movement the early days of labor movement but as an actual laborer not as just you know somebody like a jack reed who's just kind of supporting that as an idea Um, this guy is actually you know part of the union he spent several months in the hospital with tuberculosis in 1913, and it's during that time that he decides to start writing full-time. He goes to Harvard for one year in 1914, but ends up leaving, and then that's when he becomes big in the Greenwich Village literary and uh, social scenes. He starts hanging out with Jack Reed and Louise Bryant, and he and Louise have an affair he was part of a collective of artists and playwrights called the Provincetown Players that performed their plays in Provincetown, Mass, and then in Greenwich Village. Um, they ended up later on establishing a playhouse called the Provincetown Playhouse in 1916 in Greenwich Village, um, which was like a popular theater that a lot of these people would go to. And then a, a lot of his plays ended up being, they would go from this Greenwich Village playhouse and then be uh shown on broadway uh he wrote numerous plays between 1913 and his death in 1953 most notably would be his play beyond the horizon anna christie and strange interlude all of which won pulitzer prizes oh okay he wrote uh the Iceman cometh which is uh that title is parodied in it's always sunny in philadelphia when they write their play the nightman cometh <laughs> so i i like that one and then his uh his magnum opus long day's journey into night he wrote it in 1941 uh but it wasn't published until 1956 after his death oh and he was posthumously awarded a pulitzer prize for that play as well making him the only playwright to have four pulitzer prizes Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then he also won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1936. Okay. Which is more for a body of work versus the Pulitzer is for specific works. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the Nobel is more prestigious, although Pulitzer is plenty prestigious too. Yeah. Pr- pretty impressive uh, resume. As far as his personal life goes, he was married three times. Um, he was married to his first wife, Kathleen, from 1909 to 1912, with whom he had one kid. 
he married his second wife in 1918 and had two children with her and then divorced her in 1929, which is the same year he ran off with actress Carlotta Monterey, who he married that same year. Carlotta was initially a huge help for him, helping him get organized and allowing him to spend more time writing. But then she got addicted to sedatives and their marriage kind of collapsed and they were separated several times, but never officially divorced. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, he had uh, three children, Eugene Jr., who was a philosophy professor at Yale, but struggled with alcoholism and killed himself in 1950. Mm. His second son, Shane, got addicted to heroin, moved to the family estate in Bermuda, and started basically making money to live by selling off the furnishings in the house. Eugene disowned him, and then he committed suicide also. And then his third child was a daughter named Una, who married Charlie Chaplin in 1943, a month after her 18th birthday, when Chaplin was 54, which is just one year younger than Eugene was, And Eugene disowned her and never spoke to her again. So Una Chaplin, by the way, is the grandmother of Una Chaplin, the actress from Game of Thrones who plays Talissa Stark. So Talissa Stark, on her dad's side, her grandfather is Charlie Chaplin, and her great-grandfather is Eugene O'Neill. Wait, which one's Talissa Stark? The one who marries Rob Stark. Remember Rob Stark? The, The Red Wedding? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking like Ned's kids. And like, okay, oh, Rob's wife. Okay, Rob's wife. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Una Chaplin, that actress. Okay. Yeah, her grandfather's Charlie Chaplin. Her great grandfather's Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> That's crazy, huh? And yeah, we'll, well, actually, yeah. So Una, Una will come up again, I'm sure, when we talk about Chaplin himself. But that's uh, okay. That's kind of crazy. So I had heard of Eugene O'Neill, and I had heard yes. of Una Chaplin. I had no idea that Eugene O'Neill is Una Chaplin's dad. Yeah. And that they have like a big falling out over that. Huh. Yeah, that's, that is crazy. That is crazy. I I, I always like those, uh, those crazy connections like that. Kind of like, isn't it? Roman Plansky's daughter is in Vikings. That's not as crazy, I guess. But it, Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Who is she? Who would? Hang on. No. Oh, yeah. She, that's, <laughs> she's the, uh, I we talked about when we did it. So like the, the French girl that Rolo marries that's Roman Polanski's daughter. Now you got me doubting myself, but I'm pretty sure. I don't remember her character's name. Oh, Gisla. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Morgan. I don't know if this is Morgan or Morgane, because there's an E at the end. Polanski. Huh. That's crazy. And then my final notes here, then, uh, just a couple random things before we get into our uh, off-air side notes or our Patreon side notes. So... When, when they show him in New York, it's just like for one scene, and I'm not 100%, but I'm like 99% sure that we see the arch in Washington Square Park that was designed by Stanford White, mm. uh, who we talked about in Ragtime. I'm pretty sure that's that arch we see there in the film briefly. Uh, worth mentioning, because uh, I think we did mention or, or will mention next time or later in uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, 1920 is when women get to vote. So 1920 was the first election presidential election where women got to vote that was like down to the wire like august 1920 is when women's suffrage was passed with the whatever it was the 18th amendment in the i think you know those amendments better than i do in the of the, to the constitution so all these 19 teens that was uh 
before women could vote and when they're doing all these uh, political talks and stuff. It's the 19th Amendment. 19th Amendment. Okay. I should, yeah. I feel like I should know. I don't, I honestly, I just, I just don't have a good, a lot of people kind of know which one's which. I really don't. <laughs> so I apologize. Yeah. The, the 18th Amendment is the, is a uh, prohibition. Ah, okay. Okay. So I was probably reading about that one then recently too. Which one's, so which one, what one repeals prohibition? The 21st Amendment. 21st. Okay. Yeah. I know that one off the top of my head. Doesn't sound healthy. <laughs> Wait, hang on. I got, I'm going to check it. So what's 20th in between there? Something boring? Yeah, so the 21st... Okay, yeah. I, no, I knew the 21st Amendment because I'm pretty sure there's a 21st Amendment brewing company. Oh, Which okay. makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what the 20th Amendment is. Yeah, you're, it's probably something boring. Oh, move the beginning and ending of the terms of the president from March 4th to January 20th. Okay, because, yeah, so we do see a lot of these older presidents, all their terms start in March. Yeah. That was changed to January with the 20th Amendment. Okay, which we've talked about before. That, that's like a that's like a that's a technology thing. You needed more time in the 19th century mm-hmm. to make these transitions happen. And when you get into the 20th century, it's like I think we can probably handle doing this a little quicker. Yeah, and it's still you know a three month turnaround when it doesn't necessarily, or two month, two to two and a half months turnaround when it doesn't necessarily need yeah. to be that long. But it was adopted in 33, which means whose presidency got cut short. Oh, uh, Hoover. <laughs> so no one cared. Oh, was it was it FDR? <laughs> well, no, FDR. FDR was elected in thirty two, so he was the first one to get to take it in the early thing. So Hoover, who he oh replaced, Hoover, Hoover, would, okay, would be the yeah. one. Who so gets Hoover's cut was short. cut short yeah. by a couple yeah. months. Yeah, and, and, and no one probably cared. <laughs> yeah, and then the one thing that I hasn't hasn't come up, and we'll talk a little bit more about Wilson here, maybe, but uh, I don't think we've ever talked about this on air. Have you? And I'm and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I didn't I didn't do a deep dive, but like the whole idea that and I, I didn't find this in my research, but I think I heard it on a podcast. People talking about it was essentially a coup, but it wasn't really. So Woodrow Wilson's health was so poor at the end of his term that his wife was essentially running the country, like she was basically the acting president, like unconstitutionally because her husband was in such poor health and they were trying to keep it a secret, and so huh. she just essentially did all made all his everything the president was supposed to do. She just did, and then like we maybe get him to sign stuff and stuff, but he was like out of it, and she was essentially the president, which again, why some people have almost called it like a quiet coup because that's not her job. <laughs> she should not have been doing that. That's the vice president's role, and Edith Wilson was doing it instead, and arguably not legally at all, and it never kind of gets talked about. Or so I yeah anyway. So worth a mention. That Edith Wilson was essentially the acting president unconstitutionally for like the last year of her husband's term. All right. Anything else? Uh, it looks like the amendment, even though it was adopted in January of 1933, didn't actually go into effect until after Hoover left office. So it, it, it really oh. didn't matter. So he, he did leave office on March 4th and FDR, you know, took office on okay. March 4th in 1933. Okay. And so when it actually mattered, it was Roosevelt's to Roosevelt, so it didn't matter. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So no. So nobody's presidency got cut short. And then Roosevelt dies in office. So right. Truman is actually the first president who actually had his term cut short by that constitutional amendment. Then, right? Like over a decade later. No, 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 no. Because uh, no, because the, the it, it would have only cut somebody's presidency short if it went into effect. And made it to where someone took office in March, but then got out in January, which never happened. 
Oh, because Truman because Truman takes over for FDR, so he's not affected on the front end, only on the back end, which is irrelevant because it wasn't affected on the front end. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it actually didn't affect anybody ever, huh? Interesting. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Any, anything else on Reds? Nope. Can't really recommend it, but it is kind of a movie vegetable if you're, yeah. Skip it, but listen to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, I mean, I don't think they listened to this part first, so... Good job making it this far. <laughs> you, th- you, by doing this, you don't have to watch the movie Reds. <laughs> and I can hear the listener now saying, well, this is like a two-hour episode, but so that seems kind of like a long time. You're actually saving yourself time. So Yeah, yeah, we saved you an hour and a half, probably. <laughs> okay, so do make sure you go and check out our Patreon. There's a few things up there for free to kind of see if you're interested. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about, I'm going to talk about actually a little bit of history of Portland for a little bit, just kind of a small one today, uh, but we do kind of put some extra conversations up there. You also get early access to episodes, so patreon.com slash history and film. Uh, you can always email me at Simmons at trackers.com. And next time I am super excited as we get to one of my favorite movies growing up that I'm a little nervous won't hold up, but I'm excited to rewatch it. It's eight men out about the Chicago Black Sox scandal of 1919. I'm excited for that one too. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Talking about baseball. Catch you later. <laughs> <laughs>